If you just grab the Bibles that are in your pews there and your front seats in front of you, we're going to read Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, and it can be found on page 685. 685. So Isaiah 6, beginning at the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Scott. It is lovely to be here with you, and thank you for your uh, warm and well wishes. You know, I didn't think it would make any difference at all, but um, I got to sp- up to speak at 10 o'clock this morning and someone fainted <laughs> before I'd even said a word. So there you go. Apparently I can shoot lightning bolts out of my fingers, but only with the dog collar, so you're safe this week. Um, would you be so kind as to get your Bibles open to page 658 or keep them open? I'll uh, quickly pray for us and then we'll get underway. Uh, Heavenly Father, you are good. And we are very fortunate in that we have your word and that we have your son. And so help us to love him better by hearing your word more clearly now. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, had to line up for a movie the other week. And uh, normally I only ever see a movie like a month or six weeks after they've been released. uh, And usually at about 10 o'clock on a Friday morning on my day off. And there's normally only about three other people in the cinema. And just for a joke, I don't know if you've ever thought about doing this, I just want to go and sit right next to one of those three people, just for a joke, you know? Or if um, somebody else comes in and they go sit down like three rows in front to yell out, sorry mate, someone's sitting there, I'm just, you know, saving seats, just for a bit of a joke. But I never never do it because uh, I'm gutless. Anyway, I had to line up for a, a film, not just to line up for the tickets, but to line up to get into the cinema. I mean, when was the last time you had to do that? Hasn't happened for me for years. Anyway, the film was The Revenant, starring um, Leonardo DiCaprio, and it's, uh, if you've not seen it, it's a fairly brutal story of revenge, and it's set in the wild kind of mountains of the pioneering American West, that sort of a vibe. And there's this scene towards the end of the movie where the Revenant himself, the Revenant means one who returns as if from the dead, 
One who they thought had died following a, a mauling by a bear. And by the way, that's not a spoiler. Everyone knows that happens. And he enters this US Army fort. And of course, those inside the fort cannot believe that it's him. They think he's a ghost. And the US Army captain, who had paid two other men to, to watch him and wait with him, basically until he died from his wounds, this US Army captain flips out uh, like he goes a little bit crazy. And in this sort of frenzied state, he points a rifle at one of the villains, one of the men whom he had paid good money to wait with the revenant. And, and you're wondering, what's he going to say? What's going to be the first line of his kind of manic interrogation? Well, he's just, you know, flipping out. And this is what he says. At gunpoint, recite the Lord's Prayer to one of the villains. And there at gunpoint one of the villains starts stammering it out. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it's obviously a very tense part of the film, but it also reveals something I think very interesting about the Lord's Prayer. That is, it's extraordinarily well-known, probably the most well-known prayer in the world. Even a, a wild man, a villain on the brutal frontiers of the American Rocky Mountains knows it by rote. At least he knows how to say it. But I don't think he had a clue about what it meant. And maybe that's not that different from us. We know this prayer, even as the influence of the Christian church kind of wanes in the Western world. Lord's Prayer, I think, is still well known. It's still probably the most well-known prayer in the world. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I mean, I think we know how to say it. But I'm not sure we always know what it means, especially when we do look at that second line of the prayer that's under consideration for today. Hallowed, Harold, hallowed be your name. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember we opened up our series on the Lord's Prayer by looking at what it means to say, what it means to pray, Our Father in heaven. It means we're adopted into God's family. We can know Him personally. He's not just a set of ideas. He's not just a set of truths or beliefs, but we can approach him in prayer with confidence. But today, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Well, today we're going to look at what it means, and then we will need to address a tricky question about it, and then we're going to think about how to live it and how to pray it. So that is the plan for today. And so firstly for today, what does it mean to say, hallowed be your name? It is a, uh, an odd thing to say because we don't use that word hallowed very much anymore, do we? I mean, the closest kind of connection we have is the concept of Halloween. And depending on how you look at it, it can be harmless neighborhood fun or it can be kind of kid-sized terrorism where like eight-year-olds say, give me some lollies or I'll do something to your house. Or maybe it's just inherently associated with dark things like spiders and witches and death and the occult. And none of those things, harmless neighbourhood fun, uh, trick-or-treat terrorism or the occult, none of them seem remotely close to something we'd want to pray in relation to God, do they? I mean, occasionally we might describe something that's old and something that's precious as hallowed. We might describe the hallowed halls of Oxford or Cambridge, and we're not really referring to polished timber floorboards or wood panelling, but we are saying there have been some great minds who have studied in that beautiful old environment. 
or we might talk about the hallowed turf of Wembley Stadium or Lord's Cricket Ground or the MCG. And it's not like, man, that's particularly precious grass. But really what takes place on that grass really has a, a precious and almost religious importance to us because those games are so important to us. And that sort of significance might be approaching hallowed be your, your name, and yet a, a game of cricket still seems a fair way off what we are instructed to pray. So when we pray hallowed be your name, we are asking for God's holy name to be held in honour and reverence, set apart above all else. We're asking that the name of God might be held in high esteem by all. And, and when we talk about his name, we're really talking about his nature, aren't we? We're talking about his person. We're really talking about him. And although God is described in many ways in the Old and New Testaments, what we're really saying is we would like God's holy name to be honoured, to be marked out as above and beyond everyone else's. You know, in the Old Testament, God is called holy more than he is called any other thing. And that idea of being set apart, of being recognisably different, of being qualitatively superior to everything else in all creation is central to what it means to be holy. It's why it's completely logical and fitting that the second line of the Lord's Prayer is, hallowed be your name. And it's why that passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, really is an obvious choice to look at closely when we're thinking about this topic. So have that open there in front of you. Now the book of Isaiah really was a book about a vision or a series of visions that were given to Isaiah, a man, during the reigns of four kings over Judah. That's four real kings over a real country. And you can see that reference there in chapter 6, verse 1. Have a look in your Bibles there. In the year that King Uzziah died, around about 740 BC, Isaiah, the prophet, sees God. In other words, don't worry about hallowing some king over Judah or Israel. This is about hallowing God. And the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord God seated on the throne in verse 1, and it's a picture of incomparable awe and uncontainable majesty. And I think we need to see this picture if we have any prospect of hallowing God's name in our lives. Because as Vic was referring to earlier in her Sunday school class, our view of God is probably too small and it's probably too ordinary. Well, what is it that Isaiah saw? Well, he saw the Lord God is exalted and majestic and kingly and imposing, highly praised, uncontainable. I mean, he's where you'd expect a king to be. He's on the throne, but man, he's just too big to take in. You notice the train of his robe fills the temple. Just that kind of longish hem bit at the bottom of his gown fills the most impressive building in all of Jerusalem. It is like a cinema screen, isn't it? Where if you're looking at what's going on this side, you can't even see what's going on this side. I mean, you're eye maxed out, you know. But you could be exalted and majestic and terrible. And what Isaiah sees is not just an exalted and majestic king, but he sees the Holy One. He sees seraphim, literally they're kind of they're burning ones is the literal name. Flying about in verse 2. I mean, don't be mistaken into thinking that they're kind of chubby kids 
with wings flitting about in the clouds like some kind of Renaissance painting. They are terrifying, flaming, spiritual beings. And yet the awesome holiness of God is clear from the way that these burning ones, these flaming ones are behaving. They themselves are terrified. With their three pairs of wings, they shield their faces with one set and their eyes and With another set, they cover their feet, maybe as a sign of humility, as they fly around and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now, in the Hebrew language language in which the Old Testament was written, you say something three times, holy, holy, holy. That is the way to express the absolute superlative of anything. I mean, let me put it in kind of everyday terms. Imagine you were to go to the deli. And uh, you pass by all those wonderful cheeses that you like. You know, the hard pecorinos and the, the buffalo mozzarellas and the smelly gorgonzolas. Makes me hungry saying it. Because you, uh, you ask for the best pancetta, that nice thinly sliced pork belly, because you have got something special in mind. I mean, it's, spe- it, it, it's so special, you can't get this sort of stuff at Coles or Aldi. And this particular deli has only got the best, and and only the best will do for what you have in mind for dinner. Now, we would just say that. We would say, this deli, it's amazing, man. It has the best pancetta. But if uh, you were a Hebrew like Isaiah, and he tasted it, he'd say it differently. I mean, if he thought it was good, he'd say, that's good. If he thought it was really good, he would say, oh, that's good, good. But if he thought it was the best he had ever tasted, unquestionably the best, he would say, Well, that is good, good, good. In other words, the absolute superlative. And so when it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, it is clearly emphasizing God's holiness. Incomparable holiness. Only here in Isaiah chapter 6, and at the end of the Bible in Revelation 4, do you see this kind of three-peated, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah wants us to see God's Holiness, And because the root meaning of holy is not so much of moral perfection, though of course God is morally perfect, but of separateness, of otherness, of kind of set-apartness, it's almost his unapproachability that is being emphasized and praised here. Not only is he holy, he's holy in the extreme. Not only is he the Lord in verse 1, he is the Lord Almighty in verse 3. Not only is the temple full of his robe, the whole earth is full of his glory. And as the words reverberate from the lips of the seraphim, the temple is shaking and it's filling with smoke. It is like an earthquake. Because that's what it's like to catch a glimpse of God. And it strikes me that very rarely do we praise God, really, for his almost unapproachability. Uh, We much prefer to think of him as our equal and approach him really on our own terms. But Isaiah sees a heavenly vision in which God's unapproachability is really in focus. And today we're saying, hallowed be that name. Now, uh, it does raise a tricky question, I think. You remember last week we looked at the first line, really the address of the Lord's Prayer, which said, Our Father in heaven, or for the purists, our Father which art in heaven. And we were encouraged to pray to God with the intimacy and the familiarity contained in our word, Dad. We can approach Him in relationship. We can approach Him with confidence. Isn't that exactly what we learned last week? Yeah, it is. 
But that's not how Isaiah reacts to God when he sees a vision of his holiness, does he? I mean, he doesn't pray, our Father in heaven. What does he say in verse 5? Woe to me. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He's seen God with his own eyes, and he knows that no one can see God and live. That's why the seraphim are shielding their faces and realizing that, quite literally, he says, my personhood is undone. I'm unraveling. Let me ask you a question. What do you reckon he's thinking when he sees one of those seraphim grab a live coal from the altar and start flying towards him. I know what we're thinking. Glad it's not us, right? Glad it's not us. So here's my question. If Isaiah cannot approach the throne of God with natural confidence, how can we possibly do that just as we were encouraged to do last week? How exactly does that work? And of course the answer is that Jesus makes all the difference. And I I realise that sounds cliched, but he really does. And there is actually a clue right here in Isaiah chapter 6 that unlocks that. And that is that atonement is available to us on the basis of a sacrifice. Well, we'll need to look closely at our Bibles to work that out. So, the seraph flies towards Isaiah with a live coal, molten rock, and, and we think, man, Isaiah's toast, right? But instead of frying Isaiah with this live coal, it touches him, and the seraph says... Verse 7, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. His sin is atoned for. That means it's, it's covered over. It's dealt with. The guilt is taken away. And you can see all that from verse 7. Here's the question. Where does the live coal come from? Well, have a look in your Bibles there in verse 6. Have a look. It comes from the altar. And ask yourself, what is normally on an altar? Oh, it's a sacrifice, isn't it? It's a sacrifice. Isaiah's guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for and dealt with on the basis of a sacrifice that God has provided. Can't be coincidental that as Christians our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for and dealt with also on the basis of a sacrifice that God has provided. Let me say it is a better sacrifice because it is the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who knew God as Father and also kept all of God's commands, the prohibitions and the requirements, the commandments towards God, the commandments towards fellow people, the commandments of inward intent and of just outward action. He kept them all, and so he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. And it is the ultimate sacrifice because it is once for all, meaning if you trust in Christ's life and death and resurrection, your past, present and future sin is dealt with and your guilt is taken away and if you are not a christian here today let me put that on your heart it is one of the most wonderful things that all that can be taken away on the basis of the sacrifice of the lord jesus christ it's wonderful so we can approach the unapproachable holiness of god not because we naturally share this same holiness of jesus But because in his sacrificial death, Jesus swaps us his holiness for our sins so that we are treated not as our sins deserve, but as Jesus' holiness deserve. And he dies not for his sins, but for our sins, which means that our sin and guilt is taken away. And it means we can approach God with confidence. We approach God not with our natural holiness, because we haven't got it. 
and not with some kind of holiness that we think we have earned or merited, because we haven't and we can't, but with Jesus' holiness that was gifted to us or granted to us. And that is part of the wonderful gospel of Jesus. And so really this very famous picture, I think, captures some of that idea. Of course, it's President John F. Kennedy at his desk in the Oval Office in the White House. And that's John Kennedy Jr. playing at his feet. It's not a perfect analogy because the the boy would have little understanding of the gravitas and the importance of his father. And, you know, no sin's been atoned for and all that sort of stuff. But he plays at his dad's feet not on account of his inherent importance to the future of the world, but by invitation simply because he is the child. At the very same time as his father sits on the throne, carrying on his extraordinary work and still unapproachable to many others. God is both father to us and he is holy over all creation. And today we say, hallowed be that name. Now, I, uh, I mentioned briefly earlier on that um, you hear the song of the seraphim in Isaiah 6 in just one other place in the Bible, and it's Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 at the very end. And, and it's another vision, this time a vision of John's, not Isaiah's. And in that vision, John is given a window into heaven, and he sees the throne of God again, and it's dazzling again. And again, there are strange creatures that are circling the throne, flying around, and one resembles a lion, and another resembles an ox, and another resembles a human, and a fourth resembles an eagle, and and really it's kind of the noblest and the strongest and the wisest and the sharpest of all beasts, kind of representative of all creation and redeemed humanity, and they sing this song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Friends, that is the song of heaven. And if you're a Christian, you'll be joining in on it. It sounds like quite a show to me, something not to be missed. But the real question is, what do we do now between Isaiah's vision and this song of heaven in John's vision in Revelation? What effect will praying the second line of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, have upon us now? How does it change us today? And it is interesting, you know, that of all the books that I read when preparing this, um, which is to say both of them, (laughs) you know, one book is plagiarism, but uh, two books, well, that's research indeed, isn't it? And uh, both of them zeroed in on almost kind of taking offence when when uh, somebody around us, uh, an unbelieving person, uses the Lord's name in vain. Folks around us swear, using the name of God or using the name of Christ. And I have to say that I didn't naturally think of that, and um, perhaps that's because you hear it so often, you become desensitized to it. Uh, I I further think that most people don't even realize what they're saying, and it's just words to them. And I think that's even sadder when you think about it, isn't it? Maybe that's a question you could throw around over dinner or in your small group. Should we kind of correct people or object politely, I guess, when people curse using the name of Christ? But if we go back to Isaiah's response in chapter 6, I think it gives us an interesting insight into an appropriate response. Coming face to face with the awful, as in awesome, holiness of God, recognising his own deficiencies 
in the face of the holiness of God, he tends to identify with the people that he's around, with the unclean lips of the people he lives among. And he expresses a great willingness to go among them and to be among those people. Here am I, he says. You're looking for someone? Send me. Send me to them. And I think what he is saying is that he wants, he wants his people. He wants those whom he lives among. He wants them to hallow God's name and to honour and revere it as holy and to esteem God and to know God. And I'm sure that he was eager for God's name not to be mocked or misused or used flippantly by those around him. But you sense that he was even more eager that they should come to know personally the God whose name they misused. So I think taking our lead from Isaiah, we will be on the lookout for opportunities to share something of the wonder of God so that we might indeed, or they might indeed, hallow his name. And I guess taking our lead from Isaiah, we will recognise that there will not be a universal 100% success rate. You read through the book of Isaiah and you see that it doesn't go spectacularly well for him. But some will delight in it. Don't you think it would be a wonderful thing for somebody you knew to eventually be able to say, you know, I... Um, I used to use that word, Jesus Christ. I, I, the only time I ever used the word God was as a swear word when my computer froze or I sliced the golf shot or I was sitting in traffic or I hit a, a finger with a hammer or the kids were being monkeys or whatever it was. But now I know the one whose name I misused and he is wonderful. He really is. Wouldn't that be a delight? Hallowed be your name. It'll change our words. It'll change our witness. I think, um, obviously, as we'll be praying for others to come to know God, but I think it'll change the basis of our prayers and worship too. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, when we read the Lord's Prayer line by line, it takes quite a long time for our concerns to crop up. Did you notice that? Um, fourth line, I think, after the address, Our Father in Heaven, the next three lines are all God's concerns. Did you notice that? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. I mean, quite a ways before our concerns even feature in the Lord's Prayer. How about this? Even our confessions can wait. I find that striking. I really do, man. Because I, I feel like that's, that's the business I've got to get over and done with right away. But even our confessions can wait. And I really do think this helps us to load up our prayers and our, and our praise with just delight in his character and the wonder of his holy name before we quickly jump to our pressing needs for the day. And I take it that this line of the Lord's Prayer shapes not just our private prayers but also our communal worship. Uh, doesn't it invite us, compel us to be as energetic and enthusiastic as the seraphim were in Isaiah's day, as the song of heaven in Revelation 4? I mean, I get it right. We're 100 metres from the world's best beach, and I am a little bit biased, but I do believe it as well. And uh, naturally, we're going to be casual in many aspects of life. But I think, don't you reckon, being here together on time is something worth being not casual about, being kind of serious about? I mean, I think it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Uh, we battle and we struggle to get our, ourselves and our kids to school and work by 9 o'clock I think whatever sacrifice we can make to get here, to be ready, to begin singing the praises of God on time is just is worth it. It's worth it. 
And if you've got to get a park, you've got to factor that in. I know. And if you've got kids, you've got to factor that in. It's hard, and I know because I've got them myself. And if you've got to get, you know, a couple of that of your favourite single origin blend coffee because you think you'll really die without it, I know. You factor it in, right? But it's doable. We've got 75 minutes a week together. It's not a lot of time. Very precious time. And I think it's worth being less casual about our time in worship together and more eager to uplift the name of God amongst one another. I was talking to this fellow at the 8 o'clock service. He's a legend. I want to be like him when I'm his age. And he says, um, you know, it might help to let the brothers and sisters know that he gets up at 5.15 in order to be at church by 8 o'clock. 5.15. I mean, he's very well dressed, you know, so you could probably shave a few minutes off that. But I thought, good on you, man. You've warmed my heart. But I think hallowed be your name, it urges that eagerness and that enthusiasm from us, don't you think? Of course, uh, our behaviour outside those 75 crucial minutes is going to be important as well if we believe what we pray, hallowed be your name. The Apostle Peter reminds the early Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, you want to be holy because that will reflect God's holiness. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that without believers being holy, no one will see the Lord. Well, that's a scary thought, isn't it? And there's going to be more to say on this in the weeks to come, but clearly God's name needs to be hallowed, not just in our speech, not just in our witness, not just in our worship, but in our behaviour right across the week. Well, as we finish, those words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Man, they are familiar words, aren't they? A familiar eight words. Uh, Words that remind us that God is approachable as Father, though awesomely unapproachable in His inherent holiness and only approachable to us because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. But what that means is, hallowed be your name. Well, it means we, we no longer fear approaching God. But it does push us to revere Him with our lips, doesn't it? And it does push us to reflect him with our lives. That's true as well. And so, folks, to get us underway, off and rolling, we're going to do just that. That is, revere him with our lips. So I've got a... Uh, I just scrolled through uh, Revelation chapter 4, and I collected some of the first prayers in Revelation chapter 4. And I thought, I think this will be profitable for our souls. Band, why don't you guys come on up and get yourselves uh, set up? We're going to stand and we're going to say these words together. And then uh, after that, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together because it would be silly to be teaching on the Lord's Prayer and never get to say it. So brothers and sisters, let's stand and we'll say these words from Revelation and then we will finish with the Lord's Prayer together. Together, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. Amen.